Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please. Uh, most of you know that I'm, I'm working on an education program, and I'm, I'm in an online class right now. And because we don't have class sessions where we you know, sit down and have class, there is a ton of work to do. Uh, how many of you are in school right now and think you have too much homework? Raise your hand, will you? I am totally with you. I am totally with you this week. <laughs> One thing after another, I, 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 even, I even emailed the teacher and I said, dude. <laughs> and he goes, well, we have to account for all these hours that you're supposed to be in class. I have had to ask the teacher a number of questions because he will write the instructions and I read them and I think, I'm not exactly sure if I'm supposed to do this or this or is it due this day or is it due that day? And and I don't know if the other students have been asking questions, but I've been emailing the teacher and I, I feel kind of stupid because I'm in a doctoral program. I think I should understand the instructions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's important because if you don't get the assignments in on time, there is no credit. <laughs> Big axe falls. That's only happened a couple times so far. <laughs> God's expectations for our sexuality, our marriage, our family are very high, but his instructions are very clear. We struggle to obey, we struggle to agree, but we don't need to struggle to understand. And as we work our way through 1 Corinthians 7, as part of our study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to understand more today in particular about what God says some things that God says about marriage and about divorce, and uh, we need to uh, understand those instructions very clearly. Let's start reading. Follow as I read, please, from 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, the Corinthians had questions. And so this chapter is based on their questions. It's important to understand that. Concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another Accept with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, and if she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. 
But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? We're considering today verses 10 through 16. And uh, it's important uh, for you to understand this whole chapter. And so if you have missed the first couple of messages, you might go back and and find them on our website and and, uh, make sure you understand that then first we looked at the whole overview of what God says about marriage, the broad truth. And then we looked at this first section. And here he gets into what could become sort of a detailed plan for who can get divorced and who cannot. But I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective today. And I want to look at it from the perspective of preserving marriage. And the first point that I came up with after thinking about it all week is this. Marriage is preserved by not leaving the marriage. That's pretty smart, isn't it? Yeah, you thought it was going to be something really profound there, and then you went, that doesn't seem that profound. To the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband, a husband is not to depart from a wife. Could God be clearer? (laughs) Now, he also says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, He's not trying to make a difference in the uh, intensity of the command. Here's Jesus' words, here's my words. What he's saying is, I'm quoting Jesus on this one. And later, he's essentially saying, as an apostle, God has given me this truth to share with you. I'm not quoting Jesus. So it's not like the words of Jesus are really important and the words of Paul are less important. He's just telling you the source material. I'm quoting Jesus, he says, when Jesus said, you're not supposed to get divorced. It is important to understand God's baseline rule. And that's it. Um, We can go back to uh, Matthew 19. Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, here's the key idea. What God has joined together, let not man separate. There are a number of words used in this passage to leave. You know, there's the word separate. There's a number of words. They all indicate the same thing. They're talking about the dissolution of marriage, the the divorce, the breaking up of the marriage. Now, there's something important to understand here also in the flow of this text. Look at verse 12. But to the rest. You see, he starts out in verse 10 and 11 talking to the people in the church about their marriage. And then in verse 12, he says, Now to those of you who are not married to a believer. So who is he thinking about in verses 10 and 11? He's thinking about those people where there are two Christians in the marriage. And, and, and uh, it's important to understand that he starts with that category and he moves to another category. The primary rule in verse 10 applies to all. God intends for marriage to be a lifelong example, a lifelong uh, activity. Definition of marriage that I've put in your notes that I'd encourage you to, 
to write down and to, to really commit to memory based on the words in Matthew 19. Marriage is a committed, that's where the word joined, committed, monogamous. That is a man with his wife singular. It's not two men, two women, two one, this, that, and the other. It's monogamous, one wife, one husband. Heterosexual, he mentions man and wife. And I understand that the word husband and wife gets used in a lot of strange ways today. But there's no precedent for that in the scripture. So when the word wife is used, it's referring to a woman. When the word husband is referred to, it's it's referring to a man. Heterosexual, lifelong relationship. Marriage is a committed, monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong relationship. That is God's baseline rule, God's baseline intention. Now, it's easy to state that, but how do we live it out? And I would say this, number one, for those of you who are single and seeking a mate, are you working toward a lifelong relationship? Now, many people... In fact, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say, well, we're going to get married, but if it doesn't work out, we'll do something different. I've, I've heard people talk that that kind of talk goes on. I've never heard it. I really, and I've, you know, I've done, I don't know, 70, 80 weddings. I've never heard see anybody standing here going, well, gee, I sure hope this works out. <laughs> I had one couple out of all those weddings came to my office for premarital counseling, and I asked them, why do you want to get married? Because the way you're acting with each other right now is like many people act after many years of marriage, and they hate each other. And it was really a mystery, and we don't have time for that whole story, but (laughs) most people come and they think, oh, yes, it's going to be. But here's the deal. It doesn't happen automatically. So if you are a single person who knows the Lord, this is the category he's talking to. First of all, do you know the Lord? Then the way you approach marriage should be in the Lord. It should be a godly method. You should be living as a disciple. Every part of your relationship should be righteous. Trying to evaluate the physical contact between a man and a woman, it should be extremely righteous trying to evaluate the way you spend your time together. It should be developing the qualities of relationship and and character. Uh, You should be able to confront one another and, and say, hey, this isn't right, this needs to change. There should be a visibility of growth. There should be a heart for the Lord. If the only reason the person you're dating goes to church is because you said, come on, let's go to church, and they said, okay, I'm a man and I can change if I have to. I guess. If the only reason they're coming in the door is because you're dragging them there, if they were not going to church before you met them, they are not marriage material at this point in time. And I'll stand by that, and I'll argue with any of you about that afterwards, and if you push me, I'll bring out the counseling files. I'm serious. That's why my heart is so strong for this, because I see it in the crisis phase. When people didn't do their homework. Do your homework, single people. Be patient, single people. Your patience will always be paid off. If if when you're patient for God's reason for being patient, 
you reap God's blessing. For those of you who are single, work toward a lifelong relationship, form a lifelong relationship. Um, Does this command make marriage scary to you? Good. You ought to take it seriously. I studied and prayed through our engagement. Obviously, my wife is a wonderful woman. No reason not to marry her at all. But I wasn't convinced that that was the basis upon which I should make my decision. I want God's will. Because I might not be the best marriage partner. And I need to get somebody who's going to put up with me and say, God, is this your will? Because that is what I'm after. For those of you who are married and you read this command, is your spiritual mind set to marriage for a lifetime? Somebody, I think probably somebody who's sitting here, I I don't remember where I heard this, a woman relayed to me this word that her mother gave her when she got married. The mother said, you can't come home anymore. (laughs) Now these days we're saying that because we want the bedroom. We want them off of our dole. I mean, that's kind of the common mentality. But that very wise mother was saying, listen, you're getting married. You're not going to become crying, oh, leave it. No, you're getting married. Is that your mentality? I am married for a lifetime. This is what God tells me. Now, in this same passage, Jesus gives one reason that, for an acceptable divorce before God. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. In other words, God is saying, yes, there is such a thing as adultery. And we've already looked at that in a couple of weeks ago. And what happens is the marriage fabric is torn. But we're going to see God's desired solution here in a minute But if it can't be repaired, if perhaps adultery is committed and the partner moves on and goes after this other person, then the marriage is dissolved and God accepts that and understands that. And so I understand that as well. And that's why we come to this point. Marriage is preserved, more rocket science, by not committing adultery. See, it's one thing, you know, it's great to say, okay, if if there's adultery, I can get divorced. That's not the point. The point is, don't commit adultery. Adultery will tear your marriage in half, whether you want it to or not. Not everybody who commits adultery has in mind the leaving of his marriage. I had a fellow come into my church in Tukwila many years ago. He was referred to me for counseling and He came and sat in front of my desk, and I said, well, what's going on? He said, I'm in love with two women. And I said, you're married to one of them, aren't you? And he said, yes. And he wanted me to help him figure out how it would be okay to keep the mistress and stay in his marriage. And I'm pretty sure he actually did know the Lord. And I just thought, 
(laughs) My first thought was, dude, you came to the wrong place. And my second thought was, what is wrong with you? Why would you even think that's possible in some godly way? So what I'm saying is, that guy wasn't looking to get out of his marriage. Many people who commit adultery are, but that guy was not. And yet even so, and I, we didn't spend time together enough for me to find out what happened when his wife found out. I have no idea. I have no idea if or when that happened, but I know at some point the marriage is torn. Don't commit adultery. Now here's where this becomes very, very practical. Fidelity, two words in case these aren't in your vocabulary. Fidelity means faithfulness and sexual purity in marriage. Now, I should say fidelity in marriage. That's When this word is used toward marriage, that's what it means. It's also used in other realms, you know, to, to be faithful in other realms of the world. But fidelity is faithfulness in sexual purity in marriage. Infidelity is unfaithful, to be unfaithful in sexual purity in marriage. Now, here's what's really important. Because, again, the two people stand here, they're getting married, they're saying, of course we're going to be married forever, and of course I'm not going to commit adultery. Okay? That ain't good enough. For the Christian, it goes like this. What does the commitment to fidelity look like? First of all, it looks like complete relational accountability to your spouse. Complete relational accountability to your spouse. What does that mean? That means when my wife says, as she did, I don't think you should ride with that female police officer. I said, yes, dear. She never said that about any other female police officer, but that one. And you know what I found out later? Eventually, that woman went through about five marriages and several affairs. She'd never seen that woman before in her life. I'd never seen that woman before in my life. Why did God put that in her? To protect me and to preserve our marriage. I had no evil designs there. But you have to be accountable to your spouse. You can't tell me what to do and where I can go and who, who I can talk to on the phone. Oh, yes, I can. If I'm your husband, if you're my wife, there has to be a complete accountability. Does my wife ask for a list at the end of the day? No, she does not. She's very gracious. I'm just telling you that when the time comes, there has to be a complete accountability. And if that is not your mindset, then you are trying to hide something. And if you try to hide something, you will end up in adultery. Complete accountability. I have a friend who was a pastor who had an accountability partner and he lied to his accountability partner. Well, that doesn't do any good, does it? Are you going to decide that you want to walk with the Lord? Complete relational accountability. If they think you're too close, you're too close. Number two, wise relational distance from the opposite sex. Wise relational distance. We have to have boundaries, and they're different for every situation and and every circumstance. I don't know that you can create a list of rules. You can create your own list of rules that base in your circumstance. The question that we have to all ask ourselves is, 
am I getting too close to this person for a wrong reason? I have to really be honest about that. But even so, even just getting too close is a problem. There is no value to attempting to prove you can get super close to someone and still not sin. The words are, hey, I can handle it. You know what? You can't. You know how I know that? Because of everything I read about sin. Sin is not handleable. It is cut-offable. And one that is particularly important for our generation with the internet and everything else, zero tolerance for pornography, whether in writing pictures or moving pictures. And I put this here in writing because one of the most popular books of recent days is a book called Fifty Shades of Grey, which I have not read not even read the reviews other than all the talk on the internet about it. It is about sexual immorality of a perverse sort, made into a movie, and it's the big social phenomenon. And apparently, in some circles, it's talked about as though if you don't read it, if you don't go to the movie, you're some kind of social weirdo. Be weird. You know why? Because you might come into marriage saying, I'm not going to commit adultery, and you watch that movie, and and things will stir in your flesh. Or you, you read something, or you look at something. I would not stand before you and say, this isn't a challenge, it's not hard at times. You know, even those of us who have good software things on the computer stuff comes along and you you need to be real careful and and frankly if you're curious you don't need to see it anyway if it wasn't if it didn't say an email from pastor dave don't open it (laughs) although i I, although i must tell you i get a lot of emails from some of you (laughs) that aren't from you (laughs) i knew a man who was a church member and active in his church who flirted with women regularly. And if you'd have said something to him about it, he'd say, oh, I don't mean anything by it. But he had a business that I had some work done at on a couple of occasions. And in his employee room in the refrigerator, which was not plugged in, there was a stack of pornographic magazines this tall. And would it surprise you to know that he committed adultery and left his wife? You can't handle sin. Don't try. Divorce yourself from the sin, not from your husband or wife. Can you see that? Turn off the platform lights a little bit so they can see that picture. I've never been on a road quite like that. There's a show on TV, you know, extreme trucking or extreme whatever, and they, they go on roads like this with these trucks. And... But, you know, when I was a kid, we used to drive over Stevens Pass to come visit the grandparents. And back in the day, Stevens Pass was two lanes, and they had a guardrail, but I'm pretty sure they put the guardrail like six inches in right there. And when you were driving along like this, you could see the steep going down on, the, you know, it's like, Whoa, boy, I want to scoot over here. 
you know? If you were in that truck, do, do you see where he's driving? Talk about hugging the inside lane. He's not driving out here. When you don't create boundaries away from sexual sin, you're driving on the edge. And the crash is adultery. The crash is broken relationships. Go ahead. Marriage is preserved by not committing adultery. Thirdly, marriage is preserved by relationship repair. Look at verse 10. Um, A wife is not to depart from her husband. Verse 11, if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife and so on. Now, let me give you what I believe is the technical understanding of this and then the, the applied understanding. The technical understanding is this. Two Christians in a marriage, and one of them says, wakes up one morning and says, I'm out of here. That's wrong. That's a sin. And what God is saying here is this. If that happens, then the picture is you need to be reconciled. There is no allowance for divorce in God's economy in that circumstance. Now, if that person gets married and walks away, there's nothing the other person can do. But he's saying, if that happens, he's not saying it's okay to be separated. The only people I've ever known, with very, very few exceptions, who were separated, a spouse from a spouse, were headed out the door, and it was, they were greasing the skids. That is wrong. What is right is reconciliation. Marriage is preserved by relationship repair. He says, look, if you come to this point where there's a crisis and one of the partners moves out, he says, fix it. God is not giving approval to divorce. He's given us a rule for when we find ourselves in such a situation. Sometimes this happens because people don't know God's truth. They didn't know this was wrong, and they thought it was a proper way to handle their situation, so they move out. Sometimes one spouse doesn't follow God very well in their life, and so they just follow whatever path they're in, and sometimes we just plain rebel. Well, here's the note. When you come to your senses, go after reconciliation. That's what God wants. Now, there are several aspects to building a strong relationship. And I'm not here to give a a seminar on how to build your marriage. You know, there are several things. But we're here to talk about what does it mean in a crisis situation to rebuild your marriage. And I want to just talk about one thing based on this verse. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, I've given you these definitions, I believe, in your notes. I'm going to buzz through them. The part I want to get to is at the end, and I think it's, uh, it's uh, important for us to understand. Bitterness means to cut, the literal meaning of the word is to cut or to pierce, and the idea is meditating on a wrong and then acting or speaking in a cutting or piercing manner. When you meditate on a wrong that you are suffered, you're in a constant state of, of, of being upset about it, and, and then that leaks out at times. That's what bitterness is. Wrath 
mean, uh, rage in the New International, a boiling agitation of the feelings. It, it's, this is where the phrase my, makes my blood boil, where it comes from. Literally, the, the, the Greeks, when they wrote these words, they said they didn't know what was going on, but they said something down inside of me is all torn up in these situations, so they used a word to describe that. Wrath, a boiling agitation. This seems to describe the sinful internal workings of anger. The word anger refers to the outward expression of the anger in whatever form that might take. The word clamor literally means yelling. It's an onomatopoetic word. In other words, it sounds like what it is, and it's actually the name for a crow in Greek. Kraga, 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 kraga. That's what it meant, and so they called that yelling, basically. Evil speaking is most often, this word blasphemy or evil speaking is most often used to speak against God, but it means purposefully hurtful, purposefully damaging communication. When you sit around and think up something mean to say to someone and then say it, that's what evil speaking is. And then the word malice means any kind of moral evil. It's kind of a collection at the end of this. Look at how detailed God is when he says, don't let this be part of your life. He's describing this whole process. And the process comes together like this. When we don't forgive, we become bitter. Bitterness breeds hatred in our heart. Hatred is expressed in hurtful actions or anger. And it's expressed in mean shouting, harmful words, and all kinds of sinful behavior. That's how that verse all comes together in one process. But it all starts with not forgiving. When we harbor a wrong suffered, this is the result. How do you stop it? You stop it by forgiveness. You stop it by forgiveness. Now, is it always easy to forgive? No, in fact, it's probably never easy to forgive. Let's go back to the first instruction in verse 10. Don't get divorced. And the second instruction from Jesus, don't commit adultery. Do you want to know how to keep those two things from happening? Forgive. Uh, But I can't forgive. I was wronged. Yep, you were wronged. So So is Jesus. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Philippians says, let that same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing that I find most interesting about this forgiveness that Jesus talked about. Do you remember when Peter said this? Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? If Jesus had said, yeah, that's probably good, then all of our marriages would be in trouble. Because we have all sinned against our sister or our brother more than seven times. Jesus said, no, I'm telling you, 70 times seven. Now, that was written in the day before computers and the day before daytimers and the day before sticky notes when we could have actually kept track all the way up to 490 times. They had no way to keep track. 
I mean, they did have some ways to write stuff down, but nobody walked around with a scroll stuck in their pocket going, oops. I've had people come into my office with a list of wrongs. And it goes all the way back. I mean, literally written on paper. Now, here's the thing you need to think about. This is Peter asking this. This is Peter asking, how many times shall I forgive? Can't you just see the the piousness swell up in his chest? How many times shall I forgive? Up to seven times. I'm going to really be magnanimous here. And Jesus said, Peter, (laughs) and, and the wheels are going in Jesus' head. Peter, if you only knew what's coming, you above all people ought to be gracious and forgiving. Because it was Peter who completely failed Jesus. And he didn't fail passively, you know. He failed actively. Jesus, Peter didn't fail to show up. Peter was there and he lied and he lied and he lied with an oath. And then Jesus looked him right in the eye. And Peter went and cried. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. How? As God in Christ forgave you. If it helps you, how about this? As God in Christ forgave Peter. Has your husband or wife failed you any more than Peter failed Jesus? No, they haven't. You might think they have, but they haven't. You need to forgive as God forgave you. In the perspective of human wisdom, Peter should have been kicked out of the apostleship. Isn't that right? You failed, buddy. You're out of here. You know, many people think that way, and all of us are tempted to think that way. You want your marriage to survive and thrive? Forgive. There's another condition that believers find themselves in here. Look at verse 12. To the rest, not I, the Lord, say, hey, you know what? I'm going to stop because I don't want to hurry. And it's 10 after 12. And if you won't come back for the second half of that sermon, the Lord have pity on your sin sick soul. (laughs) You've got enough to meditate on. Marriage is preserved by not leaving. Act in a way as though you're going to be married forever. Maintain your purity as though you will be married forever on this planet. Repair your relationship. Forgive. Heavenly Father, we all need to work on our marriages all the time. We all need to work on our purity all the time. We all need to work on our forgiveness all of the time. And for those who don't have a spouse yet, will you give them a heart for this kind of marriage? 
Father, we know there is no guarantee. But there is the assurance that you will be with us and you will strengthen us and you will build a good relationship if we walk in you. May you do that here and may this be a place where marriages are repaired and strengthened and enabled to walk on. I pray in Christ's name, amen.